the Buddha began his teaching of the Dharma or the pointing out of the truth by speaking about the Four Noble Truths. And the first Noble Truth is, as you know, the truth of Dukkha. The Buddha was initially speaking to the five ascetics who had attended him while he was undertaking the, uh, his austere years of practice. And it said that I think one of the monks or one of the ascetics became enlightened upon hearing that discourse, or fully enlightened. The others only attained to some initial stage of enlightenment. And the second discourse that the Buddha gave was a discourse on the anatta lakana, or the characteristic of anatta. And it is said, upon hearing that, uh, the rest of the ascetics got enlightened. So, being at this time of the retreat, uh, I thought it would be a good time to speak. to speak of the anatta characteristic. In the Anatta-lagana Sutta, in the discourse on the anatta characteristic, the Buddha very carefully identifies the five aggregates, which we have spoken about before, those components of the mind and the body that we see in their very elemental nature in this practice. And he took those five aggregates individually and he led the listeners through a series of inquiries in which he asked this aggregate, this experience of the mind, of the body, Is it pleasant? And often the answer was, no, not really. There is this characteristic of dukkha to it. And then he said, well, if this experience has the characteristic of dukkha, is it worthwhile considering that this is me? Or who I am? Or mine? then if this experience is not me, who I am, or mine, then how and why can I call it myself? And through this kind of analytical question and answer, dialoguing with the ascetics led them to understand that whatever they experience, whatever we experience, of mental or physical phenomena, it really does not have or contain or create a enduring entity within this mind-body process. When we talk about the three characteristics of experience, 
anicca or impermanence, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta or often translated as selflessness, it's pretty easy to get that things are impermanent. It's pretty easy to get that things are dukkha in the wide range of that, in the full range of that meaning. But it's often a little more difficult to see experientially this anatta characteristic or to see or to feel like indeed this whole process is selfless. So I want to speak a little bit tonight about this characteristic of anatta and to point to those experiences that we all have often that begin to confirm the Buddha's understanding and in the process begins the process that begins the deconditioning of this extraordinarily strong belief that there really is some enduring entity to whom all these events are happening. Anatta is often translated as selflessness, egolessness, no soul or no selfness. And those words convey a meaning or they convey a sense of something that is frightening for many of us. Frightening, uh, alarming, uh, misleading, and certainly incomplete if we understand the true meaning of anatta. What anatta refers to is the conditionality of experience, how all experience is due to a conjunction of conditions, and that that experience or the experiencer or what is experienced without those conditions ceases to exist. And so in that conditionality, there really is the pointing to the lack of an essence, the lack of a substance, the lack of a center. To the things and experiences of our life, to ourself. Some of us like to refer to anatta as pointing to the no separate selfness. And Kamala spoke of this the other night when she spoke about the in seeing the selflessness of experience, we really come to see and acknowledge deeply the interconnectedness of us all. The right understanding or an insightful understanding of the anatta characteristic is a key to realizing the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. Because so much of our suffering is tied up in a sense of ourself. 
But the Buddha acknowledged that his understanding of anatta was pretty subtle. And because of the subtlety of the teaching, a subtlety of the experience, it is difficult, it is easy to miss the significance of confirming experience. And yet the profundity of the teaching, the implications of it, the far-reaching implications, makes it difficult to grasp intellectually. And so we're left with this profound teaching that is subtle, difficult to understand, and difficult to acknowledge in our own experience. Insight into anatta and the awakening to this truth within our own experience is not a one-time, super-dramatic, explosive realization that forever puts aside the sense of self. It's not that at all. In fact, it's almost just the contrary. There are innumerable little experiences that if we see them, if we acknowledge them, if we see them as they truly are, gradually undermine this belief. And slowly we begin to feel less secure about ourselves. And in that increasing insecurity, we have to let go. So the growing realization of the truth of anatta is a very gradual, incremental, and really a multifocal experience. It is not such a subtle, esoteric, uh, inaccessible understanding that we can't experience it. It is directly experienceable. And I hope as I go through the, uh, this evening's talk to point you to those experiences that you've had today and every day of this retreat that point to this truth. Vipassana means seeing clearly. Clear seeing involves noticing the three universal characteristics of all phenomena. Their impermanence, anicca, their dukkha, which is either their painfulness, their unsatisfactoriness, and anatta. And the way that we see the anatta characteristic is by noticing the conditioning or the conditionality of our experience, by noticing that the dukkha 
characteristic of experience does not allow any stable security. And in that instability, there really is nothing to point to as the enduring center of this process. Conditionality, the instability of a center, seeing the ephemeral nature of experience, seeing how momentary our experience really is, also points to the lack of an enduring center. The evanescence of our experience, the evanescence being the quality of vapor-like vanishing. As we get close to our experience, it is really hard to put our finger on it or to put our mind on it. Out of the corner of of our eye, it looks pretty substantial. And yet when the power of mind gathers strength and we actually turn to be with experience, whether it's the sensations of the body or the mental states, the qualities of the mind or thoughts, as we try to get near them, what we discover is that there really isn't anything there. It vaporizes in front of us, evanescent. And the fifth quality of experience is that there really isn't anything solid. Not only does it kind of appear as vapor, there really isn't anything solid there. It's insubstantial. If we take these five qualities of the experience of anatta, and look at the five aggregates in terms of them, we come up with a variety of experiences that we all have that gradually undermines this belief in self. The first of the aggregates that I'd like to look at is citta, or mental activity to keep it brief. Maybe the most enduring sense of self that we all have is that which has been conditioned and created by personal experience, our personal history, which we repeat to ourselves endlessly. And in that going over and over and over again, who we are, what we've done, what we believe, who we aren't, what we don't believe and what we don't do, we create an image of ourself. And that image acts in the world in relationship to others, in relationship to experience, and a personality forms. And that personality is supported by the feedback from others and the internal monologue. I am today who I was yesterday. 
And we all believe that. The habit to interpret our experience in a familiar way is relentless. And so we find ourselves, prior to practice, caught in a sense of self, a personality, which is generally uh, an automaton of habit that adapts to changing life situations reluctantly, if at all, that finds it difficult to learn from painful experience, that in which thought is rigid and possibilities are few, inclined to dogma, believing things for whatever dogmatic reason, and that our affections and aversions are quite fixed. And if you look back at your sense of self or your experience of self prior to Dharma practice, this is generally true. We are mostly pretty stuck. And that stuckness is really conditioned by clinging to a personal history monologue. If we don't look, we won't see. And the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated in much of practice is just that, investigating this personality. And inevitably, what we find when we take a close look is this personality suffers. We all begin practice with such high hopes, such expectations, such uh, interest maybe. And when this sense of ourself, our personality, is so exposed and we see how much suffering there really is in our, within our personality, we really suffer. And it is from clinging to this aggregate of the mind Even though experience changes, even though we grow through our childhood, our adolescence, our early adult, our middle adult, our late adult, and wherever we are in that process, the experience changes day after day after day. And yet there is this enduring identification with an accumulating history. And in some ways, the new experiences are just plastered on this growing sense of self. And our self has this amazing ability to co-opt any experience into feeding it.
practice reveals the suffering. And by slowly opening our minds, opening our hearts, we begin to see the underbelly of this personality. We begin to see the shadow side. We begin to open the closets, look at the skeletons, and our sense of self takes a beating. And that's a good thing, really, to begin to let go of this very strongly identified, fixated sense of self that we have been holding on to. But it involves suffering, feeling the limitations of our personality, feeling the limitations of our ideas, our beliefs. If we can own the shadow side of our personality, we begin to experience a taste of the freedom from suffering, letting go of a very fixed self-identity. The second aggregate which we often find ourselves identified with, attached to, is the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant in our body, Vedana. So much of our experience in practice is the investigation of dukkha. So much of our judgment of practice relies on that experience. It is very difficult to understand that we really do have good practice when our experience is so unpleasant, so unsatisfying, and leaves us feeling so vulnerable. And yet, that is the very nature of insight into dukkha, insight into uh, impermanence, and insight into anatta. Over and over again, I notice in my interviews that I have to caution and uh, remind you and myself to not judge the quality of our practice by the quality of our experience. Whether our experience is pleasant or unpleasant is not an indication of how well we're doing. And yet, because in every other experience of our life, if it's pleasant, it's good. If it's unpleasant, it's bad. That conditioning is very, very strong. In my early years of practice, I remember sitting in the hall right back there somewhere. Excruciating pain, just excruciating physical pain. And the attendant relentless negative self-judgment, the disappointment, the frustration, the vulnerability, the dissatisfaction, the boredom, the 
just endless mental suffering, mental unpleasantness, not noting it, but being indulging, indulgingly identified with it. Those feelings of dissatisfaction, those feelings of frustration, those feelings of vulnerability, insecurity, those feelings of not knowing, that's the very stuff of insight. And so in beginning to put aside our judgment, put aside our evaluation of experience, we begin to abandon the resistance. We begin to let go of our false evaluations. Put aside our judgments. Accept pain is pain, pleasure is pleasure, unsatisfactoriness as unsatisfying. Really to see things as they are without adding a further judgment on them. And in that, in that coming to see things as they truly are without adding a spin, without adding an interpretation, we begin to, again, see through this artificial identification with pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad. But this insight into feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, usually takes a long time. In part because our beliefs are so strong. Our judgments are so fixed, so rigid. My favorite um, excuse was a self-pitying lament. Oh, poor me. I can't do this practice because fill in the blank. Too much sleep, not enough sleep, too much food, not enough food, too old, too young, too this, too that, starting too late, whatever. Hundreds of thousands of times I fell into that belief, some belief. Oh, poor me. Until I could put aside this judgment of pleasant good, unpleasant bad, and see that pleasant is pleasant, unpleasant is unpleasant. Seeing them is good, not seeing them is not so good. (laughs) Not seeing them is identification with it, isn't it? Really, that's what's not good because it inevitably leads to suffering. Even if it's pleasant, it leads to suffering. And so, beginning to see the, this aggregate of pleasant and unpleasant mental states, moods, flavors of the mind, as just pleasant and unpleasant flavors of the mind. Seeing pleasant and unpleasant experiences of the body as just pleasant and unpleasant physical experiences. Not me, not mine, not who I am begin to get a, a realization that tr- 
true cessation from suffering, true freedom from suffering, comes in the clarity of knowing, rather than the experiencing of pleasure. Nisargadatta Maharaj was asked about pain, physical and mental pain. He said, yes, physical and mental pain call for action. Bliss comes in the full awareness of them, in not shrinking or in any way turning away from them. All happiness comes from awareness. The more we are conscious, the deeper the joy. Acceptance of pain, non-resistance, courage, and endurance, these open deep and perennial sources of real happiness, true bliss. Pleasure, as you know, is readily accepted while all the powers of the self reject pain. As the acceptance of pain is the denial of the self, and the self stands in the way of true happiness, the wholehearted acceptance of pain releases the springs of happiness. When pain is accepted for what it is, a lesson and a warning, and deeply looked into and heeded, the separation between pain and pleasure breaks down, and both become experience, painful when resisted, joyful when accepted. The more we are conscious of pleasure or of pain, the deeper the joy, the greater the bliss. Construction of a personality, seeing through it, Less loosening our preference for pleasure and aversion to displeasure. Third experience around which we create a sense of self, constellate a sense of self, is our memories. Generally, if we're asked, who are you? we can list a pretty selective litany of memories to create the impression of who we are by telling others of what we've done, where we've been. And as long as we can maintain this selectivity of memory, we can maintain a pretty solid, substantial sense of self. It's helpful, it's necessary really, in our everyday life, in our conventional relationships with each other, to have a very well-defined sense of self. To know what's yours, what's others, your feelings separate from others' feelings, where your boundaries are, what to allow in, what not to claim. But in the practice, of mindfulness in the process of confronting this really very arbitrary selection of memories, we uncover a vast archive, really, of unselected memories. (laughs) Now, they're unselected for a reason. Mostly, they hurt. 
And in this process of uncovering what has been kind of shunted aside, locked in the closet, kept out of sight, we begin to get in touch with a larger part of ourself, which we have tried to exclude and have successfully, to a degree, excluded from awareness. But in this dissolving of the boundaries in the mind, in this opening to and wandering through the locked vault of archives, we come across feelings, memories, images of ourself, which are really difficult and painful, really, to, to accept. But this is our practice. This is our practice to investigate the first noble truth and to see where the dukkha of our hearts, of our minds, of our life lies to uncover it. We don't need to have an agenda. We don't need to have it as, this is it. I'm going back to the second grade and I'm taking a look. I'm going to get that somebody, something, that teacher, that bully, that... We don't have to have that kind of agenda. As we wander through the rooms of our mind, we will, in time, get to everything. And when we uncover this memory, this this unselected memory, it comes with its full complement of intense emotion often felt more intimately, more sensitively than even at the time of occurrence. Some of what we uncover within our investigation threatens our sense of self, challenges our sense of self, asks of us to expand our sense of self. And the only way we can do that is to let go of the limited sense of self that we have been attached to, that we have been identified with. To open to the depth of our emotion, our feeling, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the shame, the humiliation, the joy, the humiliation, but it is very, very challenging, as, as we all know. And it isn't often that a single viewing of the movie is enough. You know, we need uh, quite a few reruns in order to get it, in order to really open to the full extent of what has been kept out of sight. And in that process, that gradual process of opening, of learning to get in touch with and accommodate these feelings, we gradually and gently take apart this belief in self. It is a very gradual thing, a very gentle thing for the most part.
what happens with this investigating of the dukkha, the hidden dukkha of our lives, and the abandoning of the identification with or the avoidance of uh, unpleasant memories, is we come into a place of fearlessness, real courage, where practice ceases to be an exercise in comfort and convenience, and rather opens to this uh, unsatisfiable need to know. It is a real liberating experience to see the mind open to what has never previously been seen. And even though we can recognize this is indeed an experience, a feeling, a thought, a judgment that I've had, somehow in the opening to the unpleasantness, there also comes the understanding that we can be free of it, that we can be free of the suffering involved with it. You know, it's, it's really an interesting phenomena, this practice of the Dharma. I had a discussion with a few other people a while ago. Inevitably, when we come to Dharma practice, we hear about the truth of dukkha. And in the practice of the Dharma, we uncover our own dukkha. Why is it possible for us to willingly open to suffering, more suffering, to uncover the suffering that's been present in our life but unacknowledged? Why is that possible? How is that possible? in thinking about this problem, issue, question, I think we can begin to open to a greater level and intensity, a range of dukkha, because along with the teaching of dukkha comes the teaching of cessation of dukkha. We don't just hear the teaching of dukkha, we hear of the possibility of putting an end to it bringing an end to dukkha. Without that, I don't think we could open. I don't think we would open. But it's not only unpleasant, difficult, heavily repressed memories that cause us to let go of our sense of self. Even the pleasant useful, good memories of practice challenge our sense of self. There was a time in my practice in Burma when for a longer period of time practice had a very definite momentum, very clear periods of mindfulness, uh, an ability to recognize lack of mindfulness, very discreet, compact, tangible experiences, which, though challenging, was certainly uh, 
able to be understood as good practice. And then practice took a turn. And the effortlessness of continuity ceased. And it was like day one, all over again. Maximum effort required every moment, where there, it felt like there was no momentum at all, from one moment to the next, from one sitting to the next, from one day to the next. And there was this extraordinary um, deflation of spirit. Even though I felt like I was still making the same effort, hadn't really done anything different, practice had taken a turn for the worse, or so I thought. So I went into Upandita and I told him what my comparing mind was doing. I said, my practice isn't so good. Something happened. Previously I was doing good, now I'm not doing so good. Um, I, don't, I, I, I don't know what's happening. And in that acknowledgement, I was expressing my loss of confidence and faith and, and energy, actually, to practice. And Upandita was very uh, skillful in his explanation and encouragement. In part, he said, if you make sincere effort and you don't intentionally distract yourself, your practice will progress. Even though what you're experiencing may not be understood as improvement. Well, he caught my attention, but he didn't convince me. And he then went on to explain what was happening at this point in my practice. He said, you know, the noting consciousness is not able to fall directly on the arising experience because the rate of noticing, the rate of your mindfulness, is too fast. And so all you are able to notice is the dissolution of the previous noting consciousness. If all you're noting is the dissolution of something, there's no substance to it. There's no compactness. There's no tangibility. And so you try and try as you might, you can never get to anything that feels solid. It is the most excruciatingly frustrating experience. There's no way to feel like your practice is good. What had happened there? I had gotten identified with this memory of my practice being a certain quality. And in that identification, I was unwilling to acknowledge the new experience as it truly was. Why? Because it seemed to challenge my sense of myself and my sense of practice. And, what, and when Upandita explained it to me, he said, what you really are seeing is this, it's really an insight into radical impermanence. Not just impermanence of objects, sensations, thoughts, but the radical insight into the impermanence of the mind. That the noting consciousness is also impermanent. 
With that explanation, I was then able to understand, as he explained, that there is no one being mindful. Mindfulness is being mindful, but there's no one who is being mindful. At that point in practice, it becomes impossible to claim that experience for oneself, as me, as mine. I mention this because our experiences of good practice can get in the way of further insight. Creation of a personality through the activity of the mind, feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, preferences creating a sense of self or conditioning a sense of self, Selectivity of our memory, conditioning a sense of self. A third, a fourth uh, experience often claimed as me, mine, is the body, the fourth aggregate. As I mentioned, there is a lot of investigation of the body in practice. And rather than talk about the dukkha of it, which is, which is very well known, what I want to talk about is the changing perceptions we have of our body through practice. And primarily that occurs through what I call body distortions. You know those times when you're sitting in practice and your body starts morphing. No morphing, you know, changing from one thing to another just by going through these incremental shifts and adjustments. And it feels like, you know, your face is flowing down over your shoulder or your, your, your body's larger than the room or smaller than a particle deep within you somewhere or extraordinarily light, not weighing anything or extraordinarily heavy, uh, about to go through the floor. And there's many more. I mean, it's just infinite variety of body distortions which we come across in the course of uh, practice. These are not insignificant experiences. But before you grab onto that, they're also not it's very significant. They happen. But what they do is undermine our misperception of the body and therefore our identification with it. Because we begin to see that what we think is our body and the way our body, what's familiar within our body is not that way at all. And so slowly through direct experience we begin to undermine the solidity of the body, undermine our attachment to it as being a certain way, having a certain feeling, a certain tone, a certain texture, a certain weight, a certain size. There was a period of time in my practice when I first went to Burma, I had been vegetarian for many years. And when I got to Burma, I discovered that you, you cannot be a vegetarian, or at that time you couldn't. 
and uh, so I ate what was offered. And predictably, I had a lot of intestinal uh, distress. So for, I can't believe how long, I mean, it must have been a couple of months, I kept a record, this is my scientific mind, of what I ate at each meal and how many bites of each to try to figure out why I was feeling so miserable. Not only that, not, not only that, I mean, you know the figuring out mind? I mean, it's really relentless. When I went to the toilet, you know, etc., etc. It's just all in some extraordinary attempt to get away from, to figure out so that I could change my eating behavior in order not to feel unpleasant. That's hopeless. Believe me, that is absolutely hopeless. And it wasn't until I finally got so frustrated, so fed up, so sick and tired of trying to figure out whether it was pork or chicken <laughs> and, and what, that I just said, what has as I hope you've all finally gotten, and ask myself, what's going on here? Pleasant or unpleasant? That's it. Pleasant or unpleasant? It's not chicken or pork or goat. <laughs> it's pleasant or unpleasant. Pleasant or unpleasant. It's so simple, really. I wish I'd had Joseph's mantra when I was there. Keep it simple. Pleasant or unpleasant. Once I turned to drop the analysis, drop the figuring out, just noting pleasant and unpleasant, I can't tell you how quick the relief was. Stop being concerned. Stop trying to figure out. Accept things as they are. Suffering ceases immediately. Discomfort is just discomfort. Unpleasant is just unpleasant. You don't have to make a whole history, scientific analysis out of it. It's just pleasant is pleasant, unpleasant is unpleasant. Sometimes in the course of practice, we come to this really exquisite experience of the body where the body is not really ceases to exist but is so light so insubstantial so refined and subtle that we really do see who we are what we are has very little to do with the body. And that type of experience, even though it too is impermanent and we can't hang on to it, can't make it happen as much as we might like to, really dramatically confronts and undermines this identification with the body. And it's not from pushing away the body out of judgment or shame or whatever, but it's through seeing 
its insubstantiality. Through seeing how evanescent the body really is, it is really just an evaporating mist. And we can see that. And that quality of just insubstantiality, that evanescent, evaporating-like quality of physical experience, of the mind, of mental states, is insight into anatta. It is the insight that serves to undermine this attachment, this identification with self. By seeing the dukkha of holding on to any sense of self, any one of the five aggregates, seeing the conditionality of our personality, seeing the insecurity of pleasant and unpleasant, the vulnerability of relying on pleasant or unpleasant, seeing the changeability of our memories, seeing the evanescence of the body, seeing the insubstantiality of everything we experience directly confronts this identification. And as I mentioned, it is a rather slow and a gradual undermining and weakening of that belief through these little glimpses that we all have, I'm sure. You've all heard something tonight that reflects your experience we should take the time to acknowledge these experiences as these experiences as the insight into anatta and even though this there is this lingering sense of self to be patient keep looking understand that through our practice we are dissolving the sense of self. In closing, I'd like to read a poem by Lauren Isley. I like to usually wait till the first snowstorm of the three-month retreat, and it could be any time, but not yet. But it's a poem about a snowstorm. It's also about this anatta characteristic. He writes, It is the first and last snows, especially the last, that blind us most, Thoreau once said. And I wonder what he possibly could have been thinking, since snow is always with us and keeps falling in its proper season, the generations accepting it without first or last, save perhaps this. There is a single snow which a child stores in her memory, the first snow when she fell into a drift, the first snow that reveals secrets like the flake on her sleeve, always to be remembered because it brought knowledge of crystalline perfection, infinite diversity to be tasted with her own salt tears, the immeasurable prodigality of the universal worlds in which we are lost the first and blinding snow of childhood. Second, the view from the farm window, the last, with the black guest 
waiting at the door, and outside, falling and falling across corn shocks, wheat stubble, plowland, the whiteness of the void. Lucretius must have so seen his atoms, created out of them a world. A wind whipped the flakes aside, perhaps, a snow flurry that conceived a farmhouse kitchen and a stove, made fields, made animals, made men, made women. Look, can you say I am not composed of snowflakes? My eyes are filled with them. They are falling faster now. Suppose I go outside and join them. Could you say that I was ever here? No. No. The first blindness is to see the ultimate minute perfection. That is the illusion of the water drop. The second is to believe the black guest at the door. My friend, there is only the blindness of a million years of snowfall. And you and I, wraiths, discoursing as we fall. Do not bother to throw up the window. Snow is already blowing. The room is disassembled. Our substance, the room's substance, is snowflakes. We're falling apart now. We have re-entered the eternal storm. So let's sit for a minute. It is the first and last snows that blind us most. Our substance, the room substance, is snowflakes. We are falling apart now. We have re-entered the eternal storm. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.